Well, good morning, Bayshore. I'm so glad to see you and so glad you're part of today's service. And uh, hey, let me just say, as I say every time I speak, we really miss you guys. Looking forward to see you. And I hope you're hanging in there. My little grandson, Nixon, is living with us right now. And uh, Nixon's really into uh, hanging on things. You know, he'll want me to put him on a limb of a tree and he just wants to see how long he can hang there. Other day we were in the garage and he was, uh, we were in there and he wanted to hang on the refrigerator door. So he just hung on there and as long as he could. So I hope you're hanging in there. You're like Nixon. You're hanging on and you're going to be okay. God's going to take care of you. So we're glad you're with us today and hope you've had a marvelous week. And last week was a Memorial Day weekend. Hope you had a great time. A little different Memorial Day weekend, but hope that you had a, had a really good time. So today we're continuing our series called I Need a Miracle. And we're part six. And we're talking about the sixth miracle or sign that Jesus did to prove or to indicate that he was the Son of God. That's the whole reason that John wrote the book of John. Whenever you're reading the Gospels and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you get to John, it's a very interesting Gospel. And it's basically John, one of the friends of Jesus, standing uh, there in front of a jury, basically, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, here's the uh, quintessential verse in the book of John. It's found in John 20, verses 30 through 31. This is why the book was written. In fact, when I was in uh, uh, grad school and... Uh, undergrad actually, actually as well, is whenever you wrote a paper, you always put the thesis statement in the beginning and everything about the paper was built around that thesis statement. But John, when he wrote the book of John, he actually put the thesis statement at the end. And here's the thesis statement. The reason he wrote the book of John was Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's why he wrote the book of John. So today, we're looking at a miracle, an incredible sign that Jesus performed. And uh, this is the sign. It's actually a sign where Jesus healed a man that was blind. Now, actually, Jesus healed a lot of people that were blind in his ministry. And you'll read in the Gospels, he's always healing people that were blind. That was a big malady in that time. But this is a very unique miracle because this was a man that was born blind. And I want to read the story to you. And then we're going to look at some principles in this story. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, uh, here's what it says. As he went along, Jesus is in the temple. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. He's in the temple. He comes out of the temple, basically. He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might, dis might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was, others says, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could 
see. Where is the man, they asked. I don't know, he said. Hey, what a great story. It's an incredible story. Also gives us a little peek into the question that we all have is why is there suffering? Why is there difficulty in the world? That's why that the disciples asked this very important question. They said, who sinned this man that's blind or his parents that he was born blind? So they're trying to understand why was the man blind? Why was he experiencing what he was experiencing? And it's an interesting concept to me that they only had a, a very, very precise understanding of, of what perhaps made this man blind. And they only saw two options. They saw it either this man that was blind sinned, but remember he was blind from birth, so that's kind of odd that maybe he sinned somehow before he was born. Did you know that the Jewish people believed in prenatal sin? that you could actually sin in the womb. They, they took the scripture in the book of Genesis where it says that sin is crouching at the door and they kind of looked at door as a metaphor for the womb. So they believed that you could actually sin in the womb. And it was kind of a crazy idea, but they thought that uh, if a woman, if a mother, uh, while she was pregnant, went to a pagan temple and she worshipped a, a pagan god or goddess, then that child inside of her was complicit in that experience and was involved with sin. So that was one of the, uh, one of the ideas. So that Jesus and his disciples, are, are, they encounter this guy, and the disciples uh, ask Jesus this important question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? So they're trying to figure out why has this bad thing happened? Why has this bad thing happened? Now here's an important thing for you to remember. In that world, in the Jewish world, and the way that they thought about things, what they believed was, was a cause and effect issue. Basically, if somebody was sick, or if somebody had a disease, or if something was wrong with a particular person, then there had to be something in the past that uh, led to that malady. In other words, they were sick because of something they had done wrong. Here's the first principle we find in the story, and it's this principle. Uh, behind every bad thing is a bad deed. You can look at that uh, statement there. Behind every bad thing is a bad deed. Now that's what they believe. They believe that if somebody had something wrong with them, then basically what that meant was something had happened in their past that they'd done something wrong. We remember the book of Job. In the book of Job, you find in the book of Job that his friends that came to him, his friends said, hey, listen, you know, you're going through all these hard times because you've done something wrong. So basically that was the world, the world view at that time, that if there was something wrong with a person, if they they were sick, then maybe they had done something in the past that was wrong. So behind every bad thing is a bad deed. So that's what they believe. And so the disciples, it's interesting that they believe that as well. They believe that as well. Now, Jesus gives them another option. Jesus says, this man didn't sin, nor did his parents sin, but this happened that the glory of God may be revealed. So basically, Jesus says, your worldview, how you're looking at this situation is not correct. Because if you believe that this man is sick just because uh, you think maybe his parents did something wrong or he did something wrong, that is not the option that you need to be thinking about. Because this had happened to this person so that the glory of God can be revealed in their life. And that's an incredible thing. Now, what I think is really interesting about this story, and this is one of the things that really stood out to me in this story, was this idea. The idea 
that the disciples believed what they believed about this man being ill. They believed that because everybody around them believed that. Everybody around them to believe that. And so sometimes I think that, that the things that we believe, the things that we think, our conclusions about life are always directly connected to what everybody else believes. So basically, the disciples were just really sort of articulating what all of society believed. Everybody in the Jewish world at that time believed if you were sick, it's because you did something wrong. It was some sin in your life. There was something that you did, some bad deed that led to that bad outcome. So that disciples basically are believing the same thing. They're believing what everybody else believes around them. And then Jesus kind of breaks that worldview. And he says there's a different way of looking at this. Let me ask you a question. Of the things that you believe about life, how many of those things that you believe are really your beliefs or, re or are, are they really the beliefs of everybody around you? Are you being influenced in what you think your worldview? Does your worldview really come from what you read in the Bible, what you think is reasonable or what you really think makes sense? Or are you basically kind of carried along with the current of what everybody else thinks? I think that's a big problem for a lot of people because a lot of people, you know, basically we don't think all the time about why we believe certain things. It's just everybody believes a certain thing. Because everybody believes a certain thing, we just sort of go along with that. We sort of go along with that. I remember thinking about, uh, I was listening to R.C. Sproul the other day, and R.C. Sproul uh, was a philosopher, uh, has a, f uh, a degree in philosophy, and a great theologian as well. He went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, and he was teaching a philosophy class with undergrads one time. And they got around to the discussion about evolution. They were just talking about evolution, and, uh, and so he asked that class, there's 39 people in the class, and he asked the class, how many of you here believe in evolution? And he said that out of 39 people in the class, 39 hands went up. Everybody in the class believed in evolution. So that was a great conversation. And he said this, he followed up that question was, why do you believe in evolution? Now, I'm not here to talk about evolution so much, but I just want you to see something here. He said that in that class of the 39 people that said they raised their hand and believed in evolution, not one of them could articulate why they believed in evolution. Not one of them could articulate that. And it finally came about that this was what they really came up with, was they believed in evolution because they had always sort of heard that, always been taught that. And so basically, they're like these disciples. They're just sort of carried along, carried along with to the tide of what everybody thinks. And they're not thinking. They're not processing. They're just believing what everybody else believes around them. So I want to ask you the question today. How many of the things that you believe about life that you believe basically because everybody around you believes that? I remember when I was in uh, the University of Delaware and I was taking uh, a biology class and uh, just really, really, really challenging class. And I'm sitting on the front row and I'm trying to learn as much as I can. And we finally get to that section that we talk about evolution. And man, I was so like pumped because I want to really understand this, you know. And uh, so I'm reading and, and all that. And uh, the professor's going through the lecture and nobody... Nobody raised their hand. And I thought to myself, this is a very important uh, conversation because we really need to get this down because this is such an important thing that people believe it. Nobody asked a question. They just sort of went through. So I raised my 
hand just gently and I said, hey, I just want to understand some of this. And the professor had been saying that mutations, mutations are basically what cause life to evolve and move forward. And so I asked the question, the simple question. I says, I've been thinking about this and I, I understand that mutations are generally negative. If you have a mutation in your body, that's really not a good thing. That means you're going to get a tumor, something's going to go wrong with you. And so generally speaking, mutations are not a good thing. They don't progress life. They really de de uh, uh, decrease life. And so the professor said this. He said, you know, that's really true. Usually mutations aren't a good thing. But he said, when you think about evolution, think about billions and billions of years. And every once in a while, you'll get a weird mutation that has a positive effect. So I'm sitting there, I'm writing, and I thought, I'm not sure I want to write that down or not. Then he went on to explain about the, the importance of understanding the peppered moth. Have you heard about the peppered moth? The peppered moth is one of the ideas of nat natural selection where the peppered moth basically uh, was uh, this thing in uh, England uh, in, the, in the 1700s or so. And here's a picture of the peppered moth. And these peppered moths would be all around England and they would be on the trees. And you can, I think we have a picture of one of these peppered moths on the tree. And it blends in. It blends into the, uh, into the tree and you can't see it. So the birds, when the birds are flying around, the birds can't devour the peppered moth because they can't see the peppered moth. But during the Industrial Revolution, when there was a lot of industrial uh, plants that were beginning to develop and all the smoke and the plumes of smoke coming out of those uh, smoke, tax, smoke, smoke stacks there, and they would, they would color the trees. And now when the trees became dark, this peppered moth would stand out. And so the birds were able to get it and devour the peppered moth. And so you see where it would, it would you know, and so there are also black peppered moths. So the black peppered moths uh, were able to survive they got on the barks because now the, the trees were darker and the birds couldn't see the dark peppered moss and so therefore they survived. And so the professor says, therefore we have indication of natural selection. I thought that really makes sense to me. I think, I think that makes sense that, that if you're a if, probably if you're a peppered moth during the Industrial Revolution, you want to be a black peppered moth. You know what I mean? You don't want to be a white peppered moth. You want to be a black peppered moth because you got more uh, indication there. And so what I thought about and the conversation I had with our professor was, I think that's really interesting. I think that explains natural selection and I think that makes some sense. And I think what it does is microevolution makes some sense that species can adapt in certain environments. But it never explains macroevolution. The peppered moth never became a chihuahua. Here's a picture of a chihuahua here and a peppered moth. See, this is macroevolution. Macroevolution is when one form of species becomes entirely something different, and we have no record of that happening. So I, you know, I was very kind, and, but I, what I want you to see is, is instead of just being carried along with what everybody is saying and everybody thinking, I want to engage my mind. I want to think about what really, uh, what really makes sense. So I want to encourage you today. Are you believing what you believe because everybody around you believes it? Or do you really, have you really thought it through? And have you really thought about what you really believe and why you believe what you believe? That's an important thing. And I was thinking about just evolution here just for a moment. And I just, I think it's so interesting. It's a study that I'm very interested in. I'm interested in, in the things that are happening you know, regarding, uh, regarding uh, the, the origins of our, of our species and all that stuff. And I found a couple interesting quotes. There's people, there's people, really smart people, 
that haven't just been carried along with what everybody else thinks. But there's really smart people that have decided, hey, listen, here's what everybody else thinks, but let's think about it ourselves. So the question we find in this story is the disciples believed, they believed what they believed because everybody around them believed that, and it's because everybody around them believed that, that's what they believed. Now here's what some interesting people said. Michael Denton, who's a molecular biologist, he said this about evolution. He said the evolutionary theory is still, as it was in Darwin's time, a highly speculative hypothesis entirely without direct factual support and very far from that self-evident axiom some of its more aggressive advocates would have us believe. And then this guy, here's a really interesting guy, a guy named Stephen Jay Gould, who was a scientist, a teacher at Harvard University. He's written a lot of interesting books, and here's what he said. All paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transition, transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. Gradualists usually extract themselves from this dilemma by invoking the extreme imperfection of the fossil record. Now what does that mean? What that means is, is he says there, there's no real transition forms that we have in, in evidence. There's no transition forms and all of that. Uh, and he says basically when we get stumped we just say the fossil record isn't complete. So basically here's what I would like to say. I would like to say this. You know, there's nothing wrong. A lot of my good friends and brothers in Christ and, and people that love Jesus believe in theistic evolution, that God was sort of guiding that process. And, and obviously, I don't think that's any threat to their salvation or anything like that. And there's people that believe that. But generally speaking, what culture believes is natural, uh, natural evolution, basically that says that there is no guiding hand, that just by my, like my professor said, if, you know, billions and billions of years, every once in a while, there's going to be a mutation that has a good effect. And so that's unguided. So I want to ask you to think about stuff like that. So here's the deal. The disciples believed what they believed. They bought into what they believed because everybody around them believed that. So my question to you today, my question for our, our students at Bayshore, my question for our, our parents at Bayshore, my question for our, our people that are going to college and university, my question for you today, do you believe what you believe because you believe it to be true or because everybody else around you is telling you to believe that? So here's what I want you to know. If you... When somebody asks you, you say, here's what I believe about human sexuality. Here's what I believe about evolution. Here's what I believe about this. If somebody asks you what you believe and you say, here's what I believe, and then they follow up and ask you the question, why do you believe that? If you can't articulate why you believe what you believe, then you're believing what you believe because other people around you believe that. It's only when you can articulate why you believe something that you've really owned your own uh, belief system and what you believe. So those disciples, I love Jesus, how he kind of like, he probed them and, uh, hey, you know, it's either the man sinned or the parent sinned. That's the only options that we have. That's what everybody believes. That's what we believe. And then Jesus punctured that idea and he pulled them into a situation where he calls them to think outside of the box. And here's what I want you to understand. Regardless of how many people believe something, if it's not true, it's not true. So just say there's a green wall in front of me. There's a green wall in front of me. Uh, and you got this green wall. And one person stands there and he looks at the green wall. 
And he looks at the green wall and he says, that wall is red. That wall is red. So, well, the wall really isn't red, but this one guy says it's red. But just say we get 10 people and 10 people come into the room and they look at the same green wall and the 10 people say the wall is red. Well, just say, hey, just we're, this room's getting bigger all the time. Just say we get 100 people in there and they look at the green wall and 100 people say that wall is red. Now, I'm not going to go on forever, but just say, just say we get a thousand people in that room, a thousand people in that room, and they look at that green wall and they say, that wall is red. Listen, numbers do not change something from being false to make it true. Numbers do not change something from being false to make it true. So we've got to understand that sometimes we just think the way we think because there's a great uh, tide kind of pulling us in a certain direction. The other day I was uh, coming home from Rehoboth and I wanted to stop at my bank. And so when I was coming through Millsboro, I had a deposit to make. It's, oh, wow, it's about 9.15, perfect. I'm going to be able to go through the drive-thru because I don't think you can go in the bank because of COVID-19. So I was gonna, it's just perfect time. I was coming through the bank at 9.15 and I looked over to where the bank was. I had to kind of come out of one uh, road and switch around to the other road there to get there. And I saw two cars in one lane, you know, the, the little bank teller, outside bank teller lane. There was two cars in one lane, two cars in the other lane. I said, oh, just a few people there. So I pulled in there and when I pulled in there, I got behind uh, this blue pickup truck that's right there getting ready to, you know, interact with the teller. And I looked in the truck and there was nobody in the truck. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, would the rapture take place? I missed the, missed the rapture. What's going on? There was nobody in the truck. And I looked, the guy that was in the truck was over talking to another guy in the other lane. They're just yakking it up, just talking. And about that time, there was another uh, white SUV that pulled behind me. So now it's sort of sandwiched in. I thought, it's 9.15, 9.20. Why is, the, is, why is the, you know, the bank not open? And I, and I looked and there was a sign. I got, actually got out of my truck and I walked up and there, there was a sign that said, because of COVID-19, we now open Monday through through Friday, 10 to 5. 10 to 5. Now, I don't know why they're open an hour later now because of COVID-19. I guess you got to find your mask, put your mask on or whatever. But it was like, you know, I, I just like, now I was trapped. And I went to the lady behind me in the white SUV and asked her if she would back up. And she said, I don't know how to back up. And she said, I can't believe they're not open until 10. But anyhow, after a while, we kind of backed up and we got out of there. And here's the point of the story. The point of the story is if you're going to the bank in Millsboro, make sure you don't go until 10. Okay, that's the point of the story. No, here's the point of the story. The point of the story is, is I saw people there lined up in a certain position and I assumed that the bank was open. And so sometimes when we see a lot of people believing in something, we assume that they're right. We assume that they're correct. We assume that they're on the right, the, the right path. And so we got to remember in this story, we learn this wonderful principle, this wonderful principle, just because a lot of people believe something doesn't mean that it's necessary the right belief. So I want to encourage you to think about your belief system. I want you to think about what you believe. And I want you, in our generation, I want you to be bold enough to stand up for your faith, to stand up for what you believe in. I want you to think through things you need to think through. I need you to think about what is really true. And just sort of don't be afraid as you think about everybody around you believes a certain thing. Because the reason that we want to sort of go along with everybody is because conformity is comfortable and nonconformity is uncomfortable.
You know, the reason, you know, we take certain positions about certain things really has nothing to do with if we think it's reasonable or if we think it's authenticity, has authenticity. We believe it because it's comfortable because everybody else believes it. And we want to be a zebra in a herd of zebras. And we don't want to be sort of standing out. Think about Noah in the Old Testament. Noah, it says in uh, 2 Peter, was a, a preacher of righteousness. And only eight people Seven others and himself were saved in the, in the days of the flood. An incredible, incredible story. And here was it, thousands of people, thousands of people that thought Noah was crazy, thousands of people that thought Noah was off his rocker, thousands of people that didn't believe at all what Noah believed, and there Noah was faithfully saying what nobody else was saying, and it turned out that Noah was right and everybody else was wrong. If you ever hear anybody that's saying something that nobody else is saying, you may want to pause and listen to that person. If you ever hear anybody that's sort of going against the tide, somebody's sort of speaking something that's, that nobody else is saying, you want to make sure that you listen to that person because sometimes that person is the person that's really hearing the Lord. So you've got to be courageous. You've got to be courageous, you know, to believe what you should believe in our generation. You want to be courageous. You want to be like a Noah. You want to stand up even though everybody else is saying something else. You don't want to be ugly. You don't want to be mean. You don't want to be insensitive. You don't want to be like a non-nice you know, nice person. You want to be a compassionate, loving, gentle person. But at the end of the day, you need to believe what's true, not what everybody else around you believes. Do you, you remember the story... Uh, from Hans Christian Andersen, the, uh, the guy that wrote, the a Dutchman who wrote these stories, uh, these fairy tales back in the, I think it was the 1800s. And he wrote the famous story of the Emperor's New Clothes. Have you ever, have you ever read that story? What a great story it is. It's a story about this, this king who loves his wardrobe. He just loved his wardrobe. And uh, he wore it, and it says in the story that every hour he changed his outfit because he loved what he was wearing. He just, he loved his clothes. And so one day, these two uh, people that would, would make clothes came into the kingdom, and they said, we can make these magical clothes. We can make these magical clothes for you. And these clothes are so incredible that they're lightweight. And what's interesting about these clothes is if somebody is disloyal to the king, they won't be able to see the clothes. And if uh, someone is a simpleton and just sort of a foolish person, when they, they won't be able to see the clothes. But they're the most beautiful clothes ever. And so the, the king says, I've got to have some of these clothes. The emperor says, I've got to have some of these clothes. So he, he, he paid these guys and they, they got out their looms. They got out their, uh, their looms to make these clothes. And uh, he gave them a bunch of money to make them these clothes. And, the, and it says that, that they worked on these looms day and night, but they really weren't making anything. And they asked the king to send them his best silk and his best uh, a gold uh, thread, and they got all that stuff and put it in their bags. And finally, there was going to be this, uh, this big uh, parade. And so he, he had already sent some of his officials to go look at these clothes. And the officials would go in, and his number one official looked, and he couldn't see anything. But he thought, I can't admit, I can't admit that, I'm a, you know, that I can't see it. It would mean I'm disloyal to the king, or it would mean I'm a simpleton. And so he went along, oh, these clothes are beautiful. Then they sent the next guy the same thing. He couldn't see him either. And so he went along with it. And finally, there was this day when they had a parade. And the king goes, and he can't see the clothes and he doesn't want to, you know, think that he's a simpleton. And so he takes off all of his clothes. He takes all of his clothes off 
And he goes through the streets before all of his citizens. And everybody's, because everybody knows the story. And everybody says, oh, these clothes are beautiful. These clothes are wonderful. And finally, a little boy, a little boy says, he's got nothing on at all. He's got nothing on at all. And all of a sudden, everybody is awakened out of their stupor. And they all recognize that he, the king is basically naked. So when I think about our culture, I think about us in that vein. They were all pretending that things are a certain way, but they really aren't. And we needed some little boys, like in the emperor's story, a little boy that says he has nothing on at all. And so when I think about, when we think about when we're going through this kind of, uh, you know, this trend of we all believe a certain thing, we're all going in a certain direction, we all have a certain paradigm, and we just believe what everybody else around us believes. But what we need in our generation are people with courage, people that ask the hard questions, people that want to know, hey, listen, if evolution is true, why is it true? Or why isn't it true? We want to think about all the hard issues, and we don't want to just simply parrot what everybody else around us is saying. We want to make sure that we're thinking about that. The other night I was watching an old movie. Now, some of you that are old, uh, older, I don't want to insult anybody, but uh, uh, back in 1972, there was a movie called The Poseidon Adventure. And uh, if you're an old geezer out there and you remember, uh, you know, the, the original Poseidon Adventure, you can just kind of like let us know right now. That was an incredible movie. Here's a picture of, of the actual, it had, uh, had all these interesting actors in it and all that. But the Poseidon Adventure was about a, a ship uh, that was uh, hit by a tsunami and it was turned upside down and uh, Gene Hackman plays this this kind of cynical preacher and he's leading everybody and everybody doesn't know what to do the majority of the people are heading toward the bow of the ship and Gene Hackman uh, sees the way out is to go up and go toward the stern of the ship where the engine room is but everybody else there's two schools of thought uh, one school of thought is that, uh, hey, we're just going to stay here and wait for help. Uh, and the other school of thought is the way to get out is to go toward the bow of the ship. And so there's one scene in the movie where Gene Hackman is leading uh, his uh, six people with him, and they're going against the grain. Everybody else is led by this physician, and they're all headed toward the bow of the boat. And Gene Hackman said, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. The majority of the people were headed toward the bow of the ship. Gene Hackman believed that the way out was to go to the stern, and in the stern you could get into the engine room, and the, where the engine room was, there were, the metal was very thin there, and there would be a way that they could cut themselves out or could be cut out. And so Gene Hackman successfully leads this group, and they get all the way to the stern, and they're the only ones that are rescued. What's interesting about the story is they were the only ones headed in that direction. Everybody else was headed in the wrong direction. And in culture, many times, everybody seems to be headed in a certain direction. We think that must be the safe way. But the real way is to go in the opposite way sometimes. Let me ask you this question. This is a question I want to ask myself. This is a question I want to ask uh, the, the millennials of our church. This is the question I want to ask my kids and my grandkids. I want to make sure that you are willing to walk in the opposite direction if that is not where you should be walking. You want to walk in the direction, sometimes it goes against everybody else's thinking, and you want to be willing to do that. Because people that are going to change this world, 
are not people that are going to sort of go along with where everybody else is headed. They're not going to think like everybody else. They're going to think uniquely, and they're going to step out and go in a different direction. So what an incredible, incredible story there, something we need to remember. So make sure that you do uh, your own homework, you do your own investigation, that you think about uh, what's important. Here's a great scripture that I love, and this is why I love the gospel. And Luke, uh, the gospel of Luke, the Bible says that uh, Luke was uh, someone that just investigated. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, here's why I believe the gospel. Here's why I believe that Jesus is true. Here's why I believe that the Bible, the New Testament is true. Uh, it's not just made up of people that, hey, let's just kind of go along with what everybody thinks. Uh, they were swimming against the tide. The early church was swimming against the, the culture. They were swimming against what everybody else believed. And here, this one guy by the name of Luke, who was a friend of Paul, um, he wrote the book of Luke, and here's what he says. And I want you to listen to the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. A couple, couple words in there really stand out to me. One is, is the word, I myself. I myself have carefully, investi carefully investigated. Have you carefully investigated what you believe? Have you carefully investigated why you believe certain things that everybody's telling you to believe? Have you carefully investigated that? Have you carefully investigated the scriptures? Have you looked at the scriptures to see what they say? And then uh, Luke says uh, that you may have certainty. You may know you've done the investigation. Luke says, I've done the investigation. I know that the story of Jesus is true. In fact, I think what happened when Luke wrote this, uh, I think that, you know, if we think about when Luke maybe wrote the gospel, he was a friend of Paul. Paul was in jail at Caesarea for two years, and perhaps Luke took that time to, to get his book together, and he went and he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. He went and he interviewed the, some of the disciples that were in that area. He interviewed some of the people that had miracles, and he did all these interviewing. He did this, these, these witnesses, and he put together the gospel that we call Luke, an incredible story there. So make sure that you investigate, that you think about what you believe. When I think about people that have courage to go against the tide, I think about Lee Strobel. Here's a picture of Lee Strobel. He's written a lot of books. Lee Strobel wrote uh, A Case for Christ. He wrote A, uh, a Case for Faith. Uh, he's written some incredible books, great books. And I don't know if you know this about Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, like, he looks like a preacher here, but he's not always been a preacher. Lee Strobel used to be uh, the legal journalist for the uh, Chicago Tribune newspaper, and he was an atheist. He didn't believe that uh, God was real. In fact, here's what Lee Strobel said. Lee Strobel said, he said that people, what he used to believe when he was an atheist, people created God. God didn't create people. People created God because they were afraid to die. And so they made up God so that there would be a heaven and that would help them to deal with their fear of death. And that's what Lee Strobel believed. And he said he came to the conclusion that because there was no God, the best thing he could do would remember that there's no consequences, that he could live a very sensual life. And so he lived a, a life of debauchery. He lived a life of drinking and, and promis promiscuity. And uh, he lived a, just kind of a wild life. Uh, he just was just kind of a crazy, crazy wild guy. And he got married. He married a gal by the name of Leslie. And Leslie was an agnostic. Now, an agnostic 
An atheist is someone that says there is no God. An agnostic is someone that says they're not sure if there's a God. And so Leslie was a very educated gal and, and all that. And so they were married and they had a little girl. And they had this uh, little girl that was uh, their, their first child. And Lee was, you know, working hard. He was getting all these awards for the paper that he worked in. He was a very, very good journalist. And he was doing an incredible job. But on the weekends, he would just get drunk. And he would come home with rage and anger. And he talked about in his story, coming home one night that uh, he was just filled with rage and he and, he and Leslie had an argument and he, would, he kicked a hole in the living room wall. And he, his life was just crazy. And his little girl, uh, when Lee would come home from work, he said his little girl would be playing with her, uh, with her doll babies and she would hear her dad come up and she would pick up her doll babies and she would go in the room and close the door to be away from her dad because she thought maybe his dad, her dad was going to be drunk or whatever. And so what happened to Leslie, his wife Leslie, was Leslie uh, met a girl in the neighborhood they lived in. She was a nurse and she was a Christian and she began to talk to Leslie about her faith and about how much she loved Jesus. And she invited um, Leslie to go to her church and so Leslie went to her church and Leslie Leslie asked questions about the Bible. She investigated things about the Bible. And Leslie became a follower of Jesus. And so she goes to her husband, Lee Strobel, and she says to, to Lee, she says, I have something to tell you. i become a Christian. And he thought maybe he should divorce her because he thought, you know, the worst thing that you can tell an atheist is that their spouse has become a Christian. And so he thought to himself, you know, uh, you know, he could see her getting better and she was nicer and all of that. Uh, but he just had a really, really hard time with the whole thing. So she invited him to go to church and Lee Strobel goes to church with her. And she li he listens to the message. He hears the gospel for the first time and he, and he comes home. He's not convinced, but he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to investigate I'm going to investigate, I'm going to look into this, and I'm going to prove to my wife Leslie that Jesus is not real and Jesus is not true and this whole thing is a hoax. And so he thought he could do it in a weekend, but you know, it took a little longer than that. So basically what he did is he took the next two years and he looked at all the evidence. He looked at the evidence about the resurrection. He looked at all these things. He realized that this wasn't legend that had grown over time, that all the evidence pointed to the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And he finally came to the point where he recognized that this story was true. He did his research. Everybody in his intellectual world told him, this is what we're supposed to believe. But Lee Strobel broke out of that mold. He broke out of that mold and began to think differently. And so two years later, on a Sunday afternoon, in his living room, Lee Strobel put his faith in Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus. He investigated. He didn't simply believe what everybody else believed, but he moved in the direction that the evidence took him. And I want to encourage you today to make sure that you think about this. You think about this. A whole lot in this story that we didn't cover. But the thing that really stands out to me in this story is the idea that the disciples simply believed what everybody else believed. And Jesus pointed them to believe at a higher level. And I want you to think about what you believe today. I want you to think about what is true, what is reliable, and what you can stand on. And make sure that you, uh, like Noah in his generation, are willing to step out and to believe differently and think differently. It's like the Italian mother that uh, went to see her son. Her son went through uh, boot camp and marine training and she went to see him in the parade and she came home and everybody asked her, how was the parade? And she said, everybody was out of step except of my son, Johnny. 
And everybody was out of step except for her son of Johnny. And what she was saying was, everybody was walking a certain way, but Johnny was walking different. And I want to encourage you today to walk differently. This is a great salvation we're a part of. This is a great, great thing that we're all a part of, and we can believe and we can think differently. So let me challenge you today before I pray for you when we turn it back over to Pastor Jeremy. Let me challenge you to think about how you can think outside of the box and don't simply believe what everybody tells you to believe, but do your own investigation and believe what is uniquely true. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Would you lift your hands up to the Lord and thank the Lord for those of you that that know Christ and are following Jesus. uh, Just lift up your hands and just celebrate the fact that, uh, that you don't have to think like everybody around you, but you can see something fresh and something new. So Lord, I pray, Father, for our this generation. I pray for people in Bayshore. I pray for students. I pray for uh, millennials in our church. I pray for people uh, from every walk and stripe in our church that you'll give us courage to live and think outside of what our society thinks. And we pray that you'll help us to change the world, not simply by thinking like the world, but thinking differently than the world. So give us the ability to do that and give us the courage to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And we all said amen and amen. Love you guys. I'm going to turn it back over to Jeremy right now. And uh, have a great week. And we'll see you next week.